best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi everyone, good morning, afternoon, and evening, and welcome to uh, this month's installment of Beer with Blue Marble Space. I'm Jacob Puck-Misser, I'm a research scientist uh, with Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Uh, to learn more about our institute, you can check us out on the web at www.bmsis.org, and you can listen to past installments for podcast at bmsis.org slash podcast. Uh, this month, we have a, a special edition of our podcast. We are featuring a conversation with author Lee Billings about his upcoming book, Five Billion Years of Solitude. First, to kick things off, we have Sarah, who's going to introduce us to this month's beverage. Uh, I will add, before passing it on to Sarah, that please respect your local laws and only imbibe in alcohol if you are of the proper age. So, Sarah. So this month's beer is called Moose Drool. Um, it's from it's a brown ale from the Big Sky Brewing Company in Missoula, Montana. And one of the reasons I picked it was that I actually um, joined Blue Marble Space in Montana. And uh, one of the highlights of that particular astrobiology graduate student conference was the local beers. And so I figured I would reminisce a little bit and have some Montana beer um, for this installment of Beers with Blue Marble Space. And it's quite a delicious beer. It is kind of thick as the name would imply, um, but I've been enjoying it. And got my bottle opener, so I'm going to. Yeah, and I guess Lee's gonna introduce a local beer from New York in a few minutes. I'd like to introduce Lee. I'm really excited actually about today and, and really honored to, to be introducing him. So uh, Lee Billings is a science journalist and he works in the intersection of science, technology, and culture. Um, and he actually has a very impressive list of places that he's published his work, including Scientific American, Popular Mechanics, New Scientist, and Nature. Um, and he currently resides in New York City. And today he's going to be telling us about his latest project called Five Billion Years of Solitude, um, which I'm sure is going to be a very exciting endeavor. So Lee, I'm going to pass it over to you and I'm going to enjoy my beer. Cheers. Cheers, Sarah, and thank you. I am actually uh, drinking a Bex Sapphire at the moment, not a, uh, a home brew or a micro brew, unfortunately. I, I left the, uh, the really good stuff back at home. I'm in DC right now, but the beer I was going to plug is from a brewery called Single Cut, which is in my hometown, my little neighborhood of Astoria, Queens. I think it's particularly called the 18-watt uh, the IPA. I don't know if you can order it online or anything, but it's, it's delicious. So... Yeah, I'm here to talk about my book, Five Billion Years of Solitude, coming out October 3rd from, uh, from Penguin. It's basically a book about what I like to call the exoplanet boom, the huge wave of discovery that has unfolded over the past two decades or so in astronomy and planetary science as uh, researchers are finding more and more planets orbiting other stars. You know, it started with kind of a trickle of planet here, planet there, mostly large, hot balls of gas, kind of like Jupiter, really near their stars in the early 90s and mid 90s. And then it's kind of exploded from there into finding hundreds and thousands of planets, not hundreds of thousands, hundreds and then thousands, but maybe soon it'll be hundreds of thousands, who knows? Uh, and increasingly these planets aren't inhospitable, really bizarre alien worlds. They're small, potentially habitable planets, potentially quite like Earth. And uh, I wrote the book to kind of explore uh, the development of this field, you know, the interdisciplinarities between astronomy and astrophysics and planetary science and what you might call astrobiology and also to kind of talk about where it might go someday you know how far we can push the technology whether or not we're ever going to be able to find 
signs of life on these really far away exoplanets. So I spent a lot of time, uh, it's, I guess, been about six or five years um, thinking about, about these ideas and talking with people about them and interviewing various uh, high profile researchers. And uh, this is the result. So I, I hope that it's informative and people like it. And I'm happy to answer anyone's questions about it, of course. I guess, you know, we can start off as, um, you know, Lee was kind enough to, to send me a, a copy of his book. You know, for starters, I found this just so fascinating because I lived through a lot of this. And it's a history that's very recent and that, you know, many of us at Blue Marble Space Institute of Science were, you know, graduate students for. And um, so I remember the two things that got me interested in astrobiology, and you, you sort of start out with these, is um, one is SETI. The idea that you know, we've been looking for these radio signals from uh, you know, other star systems long before we found exoplanets. And you start off with this great uh, interview with Frank Drake. I really love how you build all these characters. So, you, know, you really develop, you, know, you, you walk with Frank Drake and out you see his orchids and you know, his garden. And you know, it's sort of an intermingling of his hobbies and his, um, and his passion for science. So what was it like meeting Drake? And you know, we've all met him at meetings, but not at his home. You know, he's uh, sharp as a tack. He's uh, a lot brighter and smarter than I am. And every single thing he said was, I think, informed by that half century or so of experience in, in talking about SETI and uh, the search for extraterrestrial life and intelligence. Everything was like a, like a quote, you know, it just rolled out of him and, and uh, you could just write it down on the page, you know, and it, there it was. it was. You know, you, there were hardly any ums or you knows, like the, the kind of things that pepper my speech. He was just very, very fluid in talking about it and just Again, super duper sharp. He's totally at the edge still of, of what's going on and up to date on all the research. Again, more so than I am, I think. So okay. it was a real honor to meet him. And he was, you know, he was, he seemed a little sad, of course, because when I talked to him, uh, the events that were unfolding kind of in the background, not at his house, but, you know, around us, so to speak, the SETI Institute that he had founded, that he had helped to found back in, I guess, the late 90s, or early 2000s, was kind of in the midst of a crisis. The uh, Allen Telescope Array that they had built using a lot of funds from uh, Microsoft's Paul Allen uh, had just been uh, shut down, uh, you know, temporarily kind of shuttered because it had run out of funds. Obviously, you know, we still hadn't, you know, we haven't found any signals from aliens or anything after a half century of searching. That's kind of discouraging. Uh, even the biggest, uh, most powerful radio telescope, single aperture radio telescope on Earth, uh, the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, was also having trouble and is still having trouble. You know, where's the money coming from to build, uh, to, to operate it? You know, so there was this sense, I guess, when I was talking to him that uh, a lot of his, I guess, dreams and ambitions were kind of collapsing around him in some sense, that he had thought that we would have gotten a lot further by now. And um, I guess we haven't exactly. So right. there was this sense of kind of unfulfilled hopes when I talked to him. And uh, I think some of that comes from, I guess, the change in momentum. You know, SETI used to be a hot topic and it's less of a hot topic these days, I guess, because it's been around for a half century. There's been no real results. And meanwhile, you have this, what, you know, what I like to call the exoplanet boom going on where tons and tons of planets being discovered uh, people are forging careers, making huge reputations. That's the hot area to be right now if you're interested in extraterrestrial life or intelligence. It's in looking for these planets that might host life rather than looking for radio signals. You know, there's been a, a little shift, a paradigm shift, or maybe not a paradigm shift, but a momentum shift, I guess, in terms of, uh, I think, public perception and funding. And, right. Well, uh, I think there has. And, you know, I mentioned, so SETI was kind of the first thing that pulled me in toward astrobiology. It was actually talked by Jill Tarter. Um, but then the second thing was when I, I started looking into grad schools and I heard about this terrestrial planet finder that was being proposed. And I was told that it was being planned to launch by 2014. 
you know, which would be a year from now. <laughs> and I laugh as I say this because, you know, it's, um, I think, in an indefinite postponed status, which means it may possibly never fly, or if it does, it'll be uh, when we're all much older. And so, you know, while we're still talking about Drake, you start the book with Drake, but then you kind of end by talking about, you know, some Sarah Seeger, Jim Casting, and some of the major exoplanet hunters uh, in the field. But what you didn't do is, you know, what, how does Drake feel about planet finding? What's his take about TPF and, and these, you know, the occulters and interferometers? And does he feel like we need to be investing more in radio SETI still and that that search isn't done? Or is he just as excited about, you know, launching planet finder missions that might find better targets for SETI. Oh yeah, to be clear, he's, he's super excited about that. And he, again, was seemingly more knowledgeable about all that stuff than I was when I asked him questions, you know? Uh, I, I could not stump him on anything. He's a mastermind, an encyclopedia of knowledge, and he's super less. excited about, about the TPFs. TPF, Terrestrial Planet Finder, just for people listening in, is, uh, I guess, a notional mission or series of missions that was proposed back in the mid-90s by the top brass at NASA. And uh, as Jacob just mentioned, it was originally forecast to be launching right about now. Yeah, you know, Drake is uh, was super excited about that stuff. He kind of thought that, you know, there's enough room in the sandbox for everyone to play. And he did acknowledge, of course, that the advantage of something like a TPF of one of these life-finding space telescopes is that, you know, you don't need little green men building radio transmitters and pointing them at Earth and desiring to communicate between the stars to get a hit, to get a detection. Instead, you know, a TPF can just look at a planet's atmosphere potentially and look for signs of life, so-called biosignatures, things like uh, free oxygen or methane together in the atmosphere, you know, things that really shouldn't coexist together chemically, but somehow do. And uh, people think those are good signs of life. That's how we can look at life here on Earth from very far away, we think. And I, the one thing I'd want to mention, I guess, you know, as I'm kind of freewheeling through this is... Uh, that TPF was actually really important for me as well in wanting to write the book. You know, when I first got interested in these topics, I guess back around the turn of the millennium was when it really started. And uh, a few years after that, I was in the same boat as you, Jacob, where, you know, you hear about this and you hear about these missions and they're supposed to be launching relatively soon. And you get so excited. You think, oh my gosh, you know, we're really going to be able to image other potentially Earth-like planets sometime soon when I'm in my, you know, I'm in my 30s or early 40s. That's great. That's amazing. Why is no one else really excited in writing about this. So I decided I wanted to do that. I wanted to get to know the people who were going to be exploring, you know, these strange new worlds. The, you know, if you had the opportunity to, I guess, sit with Columbus on his maiden voyage across the Atlantic Ocean back in 1492, would, you know, would you do it? I thought about that and I said, of course I would. And that's kind of the analog of my thinking about some of the people who are trying to explore and find these other potentially Earth-like planets out there. I wanted to get to know them and tell their stories uh, with the notion and the idea that these telescopes will be launching in the near future. And uh, I guess as I worked on the book and talked to a lot more people and you know found out more about the harsh realities of planning for big ambitious space missions, came to realize that those early rosy estimates for imaging other Earth-like planets, launching a TPF, a terrestrial planet finder, were, uh, well, yeah, they were just very, very optimistic. And uh, you know the reality was a little more grim. And uh, that's really informed the book. It seems to be kind of a running theme through the book that the optimism of scientists and what you know is technologically feasible compared to the reality of the available funding and the political momentum that you need to sustain some of these long-term projects. I mean, you know, you mentioned you know Arecibo and many of the SETI projects, all the terrestrial planet finders, and then even you talk a lot about how Bush's constellation program, the Moon Mars Initiative, really you know was one 
big drain uh, on NASA's other resources. And then you also mentioned, you know, just a lot of the competition among other scientists within astronomy, for example, which is something I think non-scientists aren't necessarily, you know, aware of. There's there's a lot of competition that goes on because there's there's limited resources, and if, if some people are interested in planets, some people are interested in galaxies. You know, how do you, how do you uh, decide between priorities? And sometimes in science, it's the first people who seem to get priorities. Exoplanets are a relatively new field. There's a very well-established community of astronomers who have other priorities. But to me, and you, you, maybe you can comment on this after all of the people you've talked to, I, I agree with your sense that many astronomers are uninterested in planets, even though they're interested in everything up to the formation of planets, but not including them. Right. But why? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good point. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there, but I guess what I'll start off with and what I'll say is that finding another Earth, finding another instance of, of life elsewhere in the universe, chances are that's not going to rewrite the fundamental laws of physics. That's not going to you know, lead to some kind of new physics. It's not going to lead to the discovery of something like dark matter or dark energy or, you know, a new fundamental force. It's a little prosaic in a sense. And, and I think that that's maybe why some people aren't very attracted to it um, because it's somehow beneath them. You know, it's not, it's not really addressing these grander questions that are above and beyond, you know, the, the feeble scrapings of life on a planet, ultimate fate of the universe or, uh, you know, the origins of existence, it doesn't really approach those things. So I think that that's maybe one reason why there's this lack of interest from some people. But, uh, you know, I, I have to say that talking to some of those people and, and hearing those opinions, it, it makes, me, uh, makes me wonder why they got into science in the first place, because it just demonstrates a profound, appalling lack of curiosity um, and vision. So, yeah, it's a mystery to me, too, really. I wonder if it's almost a difference between reductionism where you're trying to break everything down to the fundamental components versus more of a big picture integrative science where you know astrobiology tries to draw together from many different disciplines. And I think you're right. You're not going to discover more about the Higgs boson or what underlies everything. I think the, you know, if you were to pull members of the public, it might almost be reversed. I think many people who, you know, watch the discovery channel and go to museums, would probably rather find out that there are or aren't habitable planets rather than, you know, more about the fundamental nature of matter. I, I just want to like jump in here for a second because I, I find that there's this impression that, you know, life is definitely common in the universe and that might be contributing to this, like not being as an exciting field as other ones. And that like the public and many scientists just don't know that we really have no justification for making that statement. Because to me, you know, I, I kind of grew up in physics, and so I like those deep fundamental questions, but I see are we alone as, as fundamental a question as those. So I wonder if it's just sort of a cultural misunderstanding or a cultural divide. Because I, I know when you poll the public, a lot of people think that when you ask them about the origin of life, they think it's the Big Bang. They don't think it's looking for life on other planets. So it's, it's just maybe that might be contributing to yeah, quite possibly. Uh, you know, I, I'm always kind of amazed that you can look at public polling and generally speaking, it seems like the public thinks we're a lot further along in the search for extraterrestrial life than we actually are, and that a lot more money is spent on it than actually is. I think that may also have something to do with it. This notion that, oh, we're, we're spending, some people think that we're spending 15% or 20% of the nation's budget on NASA. You know, that was a small poll that I can't quite remember the citation for it, but it came out, I think, circa 2007, 2008. And you know, you're just shocked by the disconnect when, in fact, of course, the real real spending on NASA is more on the order of a third of a cent 
of each federal dollar, something like that. Yeah, so I think there's this sense maybe that, that we're further along than we actually are and that you know, some of these questions should be answered by now since we've been th apparently throwing so much money and time at them over the years, even though we really haven't. Another one of the themes I think that I noticed through this book is it's kind of asking the question, why are we interested in space in the first place? And what are we doing with space exploration? And, um, oh, there's, there's a Russian name that I'll probably botch, um, Silovsky, or how do you say that? I think it's Tsiolkovsky. Okay. Yeah. And you kind of mention him almost as, as one of the originators of imagining human expansion into space and what that might look like. And I think that the phrase was that any one planet species is, is doomed to extinction. And, and you know, if you want to survive, you, you have to colonize other stars. But then that's juxtaposed against our very short-sighted political system where to embark on a thousand-year or 10,000-year mission when you have four- and eight-year election cycles is a very difficult thing. And so I think a lot of scientists may feel like we're laying the groundwork for something you know, to come. And um, you know, even companies like SpaceX and other private industries are doing that. But it's still very difficult to rally around thinking about future human exploration of space when that kind of exploration is so far into the future that number one, it's hard to imagine. And number two, it's hard to get economic gain from. And so then you get these very short funding cycles. So well, I guess the one thing I'll add before you can comment on that is I liked how you talked about Sarah Seeger. I did not actually know that she had now decided to pursue backing uh, commercial space flight for the purpose of aiding exoplanet hunting. I mean, I thought that was very interesting that someone would see a budget shortfall like we're in and decide to use their expertise in such a way to aid industry to make the technology cheaper so that instead of relying on taxpayer money, we're pursuing all possible options. That's very telling that our scientists have to be, you know, almost fundraising now instead of doing the kind of science that they really want to. So I don't know what the answer is to that. Just maybe you could comment. How do we get that kind of long-term vision into you know, our society? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I actually don't really know the answer either. Um, you know, I, one thing that drew me to astronomy originally is I think also kind of its blessing and its curse, uh, maybe it's Achilles' heel, so to speak, which is that it's so disconnected from everything that we experience on Earth. It's disconnected from profit motives. It's never going to be the same thing as, uh, or as profitable as, you know, semiconductor physics or quantitative finance or, you know, all kinds of other things. They're, the applications of it are very far off and, and hard to see. You know, as long as we're confined to the earth, uh, you can't really see much um, in the way of profit being gained from looking for other planets or, you know, prospecting for minerals around asteroids or, you know, whatever it is. So, yeah, I, I don't quite know the uh, what the answer is as to how to encourage more long-term thinking. I do think it's very important. And and I guess one thing that kept creeping into my thinking while I was writing the book, I, I will admit that this may be, and maybe there's no maybe about it, maybe it just certainly is, um, it may be irrational. It may be this tendency for everyone to always think that they live in a special moment in time. You know, people have been saying that for the entirety of human history, that somehow this moment is different from every other moment and that we're on a knife edge. But of course, now it does kind of seem like maybe that's true. Uh, since we do have a global civilization that's, you know, everything's connected now in a way that it didn't used to be. Technology is kind of seeped into the nooks and crannies of the planet. We have, you know, nuclear warheads that can bring about an end to our current era, just like that. That's a reality. You know, we have anthropogenic climate change, acidifying oceans, melting polar caps. Uh, we're in the midst of probably another mass extinction of our own making. I mean, there's all these things to show kind of our growing 
influence over the planet, you know, us becoming the true masters of the planet in a way, it seems kind of unstable. I guess I think about that and it makes me wonder if there's not some kind of potentially quite limited window of opportunity in which we can realistically hope to achieve some of our timeless kind of science fictional dreams of going to other stars or finding other life out there. You know, there's no guarantee. Look at the space shuttle. Space shuttle was this amazing piece of technology. It was very flawed, but still an amazing piece of technology that, that worked essentially miracles when you look at what they did with the Hubble servicing missions, the fact that you can go up and, you know, go up, launch like a rocket, land like a plane. It's a magnificent feat of engineering and we don't have it anymore. We can't do those kinds of missions anymore. You know, the infrastructure for that no longer exists. The engineers have retired or gone to other things. The money's not there. The factories to produce the parts in large part aren't there. Uh, so if we wanted to launch a space shuttle tomorrow, despite the fact that we've been doing it for the past 30 years, despite the fact that I grew up with it and it's this thing that seems old hat to me, we can't do it. You know, we can't go back to the moon right now. There's all these kinds of situations you can look at throughout the history of space flight and the development of high technology. And it just seems like, you know, maybe we should really uh, get going. Maybe we don't have as much time as we thought we did. Maybe we should have some urgency to our searching and to our expansion off planet. And, and, you know, again, I feel like a lot of this is somewhat irrational in a way. It all comes from kind of this yearning that I think everyone has to believe that they uh, exist at a special moment in history. But again, I mean, the, the, the book is kind of trying to lay out reasons why perhaps we do, in fact, exist at a special moment in this planet's history. And, and therefore, we should start planning for the long term. So you talk to many different scientists all over the country. What is the most surprising fact that you uncovered during the process of writing the book? Wow, that's a really tough one because I, I did learn so many surprising things from essentially everybody. I'm trying to think of one in particular that might stand out. Um, when I was talking with Jim Casting, uh, this geoscientist at Penn State, kind of about you know the, the magnitude of his achievements and, and how he was not very well known outside of academia, outside of the small little field. You know, Here's a guy who helped unveil what we call the carbonate silicate cycle, the, which acts essentially as a thermostat for our planet. It's the reason why the Earth has maintained its habitability for billions of years. It's the best reason we can come up with anyway. And uh, yeah, that's a pretty profound thing. It, it, this same carbonate silicate cycle is also you know, connected to the way that we chart out habitable zones around other stars. It, it, it factors into that. It also factors into the projected lifetime of the biosphere on Earth. You know, Once this carbonate silicate cycle that helps regulate greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere kind of slows down and stops working later far in the future of the planet, the biosphere is going to have a much more difficult time surviving and making a life of it. Uh, photosynthesis isn't going to work as well. Eventually, it'll stop working at all. And when that happens, the food chain will collapse, as far as we know, and everything will kind of go away. You know? <laughs> and I, I think it's really fascinating. I guess one really super interesting thing that I learned you know, when talking with him and, and, and talking about the origin of these ideas was just seeing kind of how deeply they seep into so many fundamental and profound issues that affect every single living thing on the planet. And yet, you know, here he is toiling away in a small office at Penn State. No one knows who he is. He's working in obscurity, basically. Again, when I say no one knows who he is, I mean, in the big scheme of things, no one does. And that disconnect really just struck me. And I found it again and again throughout the... Um, you know, throughout my time and my research. And I, that was one reason, you know, that I really got passionate about the book was the the notion of telling these people's stories and, and revealing their work to the world in a way that um, maybe it can get them a little more recognition and, and more people can understand the importance of what they're doing. So it's not just a science book, right? So it's also a descriptive path of the minds that have shaped the field. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Actually, I, I would kind of push back against the notion that it is a science book. Uh, there's no figures. There's only one equation. It's pretty narrative. It takes some artistic license with things in terms of, you know, kind of jumping around uh, in setting scenes. And, and you know, it's funny because I, I feel like uh, there's a risk that the book could be marketed and perceived as this popular textbook that's going to tell you everything you need to know about the search for life in the universe. That's not what it is. It's not about that. It's actually much more about kind of capturing this moment in time and what's led to it and, and where it could go, but really capturing this, this little moment in time where uh, a handful of people on the planet could potentially reach out and find other potentially living worlds. It's really about that. And uh, some, you know, some early reviews have kind of been confused about that. One faulted the book for being too much like a novel. <laughs> Whereas the whole point is that it is supposed to be like a novel. It is supposed to be this thing that you're going to read and get engaged with. And it's not just dry facts. It's a story about people instead of just being about, you know, stars and planets. So that was something that I deliberately did. And uh, I hope it'll pay off. One of the things I really appreciated was just what you said, though, how this is a story about people. I was in Jim Casting's group when a lot of the stuff was happening. And, you know, some of the some of the characteristics are like are spot on. I, I can just think, oh, I remember you know, that's exactly what Jim's like. And other things are stories that you kind of, you know, got out of them about their background. And I found it very interesting, for example, that when Jim Casting was at NASA Ames working on his climate model, that his father told him to get a real job. <laughs> uh, that's something that I think a lot of scientists, you know, many people are postdocs and, and um, parents don't always understand what science research is. And I, I think he wasn't the only one. I think Sarah Seeger even had uh, similar encouragement to pursue medical doctors versus uh, going into physics. So it's interesting to think about, you know, these people that are role models in our field, but you've kind of dug up some of their past and maybe it's a little more easy to relate to them. I um, hope so. You know, and Jim actually, uh, I, I ran that, that portion of the text by him and, and he was a little, he was slightly, I think, uncomfortable that I'd included that story, but it was true. And he ended up, you know, signing off on it and said, you know, okay, that's, you know, that's right. I told you that and you can include it, which was nice of him to do. But yeah, you know, this kind of gets back to the earlier thing we were talking about, which is the disconnection of a lot of these topics in planetary science and in astronomy and astrophysics from everyday life, from the real world. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think I maybe I didn't complete my thought last time, but I was saying that it's this Achilles heel. It's both good and bad. It's good in that, you know, everyone can kind of romanticize it and, and, and idealize it as this thing that's above and beyond us and outside of us. And therefore, it's kind of pure and, and untouched and untrammeled. But at the same time, that obviously leads to people discounting it and saying it's not important. I don't really know. I mean, I, I guess the, the best solution for that is trying to bring it down to earth, trying to show how, you know, astrophysics and astronomy and planetary science, well, let's just stick with astrophysics, is, you know, intimately related to our life here. It's, you know, the underpinning of everything that's around us. It supports the biosphere. You think about the sun shining and the grass growing and being underneath the blue sky and all that stuff really comes down to we're around a star uh, and we're a little tiny planet. These little just very simple prosaic facts you know, lending them uh, a real profundity, I feel like, can kind of maybe help connect more of these otherwise abstruse issues with the public. I, at least that's what I like to think anyway. Could you tell us who you interviewed and perhaps a little bit about them and perhaps yeah. why you chose them? Let's see. Let's run down the list. So I got my first hard copies of the book here. I'll open up the table of contents, look at things to refresh my memory. So I interviewed a lot of different people, uh, but the main characters that are focused on in the book are Frank Drake, the uh, originator of SETI, a guy named Greg Laughlin, an astrophysicist uh, at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, 
I interviewed, let's see, also Jim Casting, who we've already talked about extensively here, a geoscientist and atmospheric scientist at uh, Penn State University. I also talked with uh, Matt Mountain, the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute. I talked with uh, Wes Traub, who is kind of the director of uh, NASA's Exoplanet Exploration Program uh, and uh, a key force in the early years of uh, the Terrestrial Planet Finder mission concepts. Uh, he's out at uh, JPL Caltech. Obviously, Sarah Seeger at MIT. Talked to her a whole lot. And uh, Jeff Marcy at um, University of California, Berkeley, uh, one of the founders of, of the exoplanet boom, who discovered, along with uh, his colleagues Paul Butler and Steve Vogt and some other folks, uh, discovered most of the early exoplanets during the early years in the mid-90s. I guess those are the main people who were really focused on the book. There are lots of other characters. There's a lot of interviewing that went on that informed the book, but, you know, doesn't necessarily lead to a lot of quotes, uh, but just because you can't include everything, you know? So uh, those are the main people that it covers. Um, I try to tell each person's story and then connect it to the larger narrative of, you know, trying to find other Earth-like planets, trying to build telescopes that can look for signs of life on them, and maybe someday trying to escape our own solar system and our uh, otherwise dismal fate as dictated by stellar astrophysics, you know, which says, well, the sun's going to going to burn out and die and then we all die. You know, can, can we escape that? Can we move beyond that? I try to incorporate their stories into that narrative thrust of the book. So having gone through all this story and you know, having talked to all these major players, uh, what's, which is, what's your prediction for the future of, you know, exoplanetology? Maybe the near term future, but then maybe an, an extended prediction. And You know, the book is a product of its time. I did most of the writing on it in 2011. So that's two years old now. Things in some ways have gotten better and in other ways they've gotten worse. Uh, I will say that a lot of it depends on luck, I think. I think that we could get very, very lucky. And if, and if we're very, very lucky, there's a path toward finding other living planets, toward detecting biosignatures on exoplanets and things like that um, within the next 10 years. There's a, there's a path to that. I think it's unlikely that that will pan out. And that's just my, my kind of knee-jerk bias. The pathway, this lucky pathway is essentially, um, you know, I think circa, what is it, 2017, uh, NASA's going to launch uh, a satellite called TESS, which I, I can't quite remember what it stands for. I think Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, is that what it is? Something I like that. that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. TESS. And this thing is going to, and, and obviously, you know, I'm, you guys all know about this, so I'm speaking more to, to other listeners. TESS is going to be looking at nearby stars for transiting planets. The key thing there is that they're nearby, which means they offer a whole lot of photons for astronomers to use to potentially uh, study and characterize them. The advantage of, of having a transiting planet means that, you know, you, you basically can pin down it's uh, a lot of its properties very easily in a way that uh, you can't necessarily do through various other planetary detection techniques. So you can get things like its mass, its radius, its density, and you can even get some uh, information about its atmospheric composition, uh, or at least the, the extent and, and composition of its upper atmosphere. So, so the notion is that, you know, TESS could potentially find some promising planets around nearby stars that happen to transit and are thus more easy, you know, easier to study. Um, in particular, it's going to be looking, I guess, at, uh, I think, so-called M-dwarf or red dwarf stars, which uh, are smaller than the sun, dimmer than the sun, and they have, consequently, uh, habitable zones that are much closer in. So the planet kind of hugs the star much more closely. And uh, what that means is that, you know, it, once you move a planet into this little tiny star, uh, as it gets closer, it's, its chances of transiting increase. So it's kind of a sweet spot where, you know, we can look for... Uh, potentially habitable planets around these very small dim stars. 
they have a better chance of transiting. There's more of them around us than there are sun-like stars. You know, I think there's maybe like, I can't remember the exact numbers, but on the order of, you know, I think 20 or 50 sun-like stars within a certain radius of our own solar system. And then, you know, there's something like 100 or 120 of uh, these smaller stars. So there's more of them, you know, they have a better chance of transiting and you can study them in more detail because they're kind of, uh, they're kind of dimmer, it seems like, uh, in terms of their contrast ratios. Anyway, not to get too deep into that, the point is, is that TESS could find these things. And then the James Webb Space Telescope launching notionally, hopefully in 2018, could start doing some of this work, characterize them and studying them and looking for signs of life in their atmosphere. I, I guess I just feel, I feel like that's, again, very contingent on luck. And um, I, I, I would guess that, you know, the search and the, in particular, J, James Webb's characterization of these planets is not going to be quite as easy as some boosters are kind of promoting it as. So there is that path that could happen and unfold over the next 10 to 15 years. And then there's kind of the other path that the book really talks about a lot more, which is this notion of looking for, you know, true Earth analogs, Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars. And that really does require, it seems like, something like a TPF. I, I, I've talked to no one who, you know, really thinks that we can get a robust uh, sample of, of planets around, uh, let's say, the nearest hundred or nearest thousand sun-like stars using purely ground-based techniques. You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff you can do with these so-called extremely large telescopes that are going to be built maybe in the next decade or two. You know, these are things that have on the order of, I think, what, like 30 meter apertures. They're huge. And we can do a lot of great science with them, uh, including the characterization of a few, you know, atmospheres for small, potentially habitable planets around very nearby stars. But again, it's a matter of luck. You know, um, if you find a potentially habitable planet um, that's, let's say, orbiting a sun-like star more than, I would guess, five light years away, <laughs> 10 light years away, you know, you're, I, I'm, the way that I understand it, which is very, um, you know, provisional, of course, I'm not a scientist. Uh, it seems to be that that's going to be kind of beyond uh, the capacity of a lot of these uh, extremely large telescopes, these ELTs from the ground to really characterize. Maybe I'm wrong. Technology will keep progressing and uh, there's other ways to do this rather than building a really big specialized space telescope. We can't just count on luck. We need to actually uh, work the problems to ensure that we have the best possible chances of our considerable investments in these technologies paying off. I think the history you, you draw in your book certainly makes a case for uh, a long, a delayed discovery of an exo-Earth. We'll, we'll put it that way. Well, I'll just add to that that uh, the, the first thing you said about how you didn't write the book impartially, I really appreciated that, actually. It made it uh, quite a fun read. You'll probably have some skeptics, I suppose, that read it. There'll probably be some you know, galactic astronomers studying cosmology that completely disagree. But I suspect that most of the people who pick up this book want to find habitable planets. And so they're already on your side. And that actually, in addition, just the knowledge and history and science you learn from that, it's actually a really fun read just because of the characters and because by the end, you just want to find that planet. And so hopefully with any luck, we'll get there soon. <laughs> I really hope so. You know, I, I just want to thank everyone. I want to thank you, Sanjoy and Jacob and, and Ravi and, and Sarah, who's now uh, no longer with us on, on the call. I want to thank everyone, everyone who's listening for listening. And I want to thank you, you in particular, all of you uh, for asking your questions, for letting me come on here and for the important work that you're doing with uh, the Blue Marble Institute. So it's been a real pleasure. Well, great. Thanks so much for joining us, Lee. And uh, listeners, be sure to tune in next month for our next installment of Beer with Blue Marble Space. See you later. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence.
There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. Thank you.